Well, let's be honest. This is a pretty perplexing story. We read it, we read it again, and we wonder, what has this to say to our souls? The perplexity, at least in my mind, is highlighted by the words in verse number 39 of chapter 13. And the soul of King David longed to go forth unto Absalom. And then again in verse 1 of chapter 14, Joab perceived that the king's heart was toward Absalom. What's going on here? Well, we know back in chapter 13, verse 34, that Absalom has fled, likely fleeing for fear that the judgment of the king would come upon him. He's been guilty of a premeditated murder. Two years he's been waiting for the time to put Amnon to death because he forced his sister Tamar, verse number 32. Absalom fled likely, and again, this is a good inference, he likely fled because he understood the king's heart was grieved for the death of his firstborn son Amnon. And there is this sorrow of heart, and he flees. He returns to the land of his mother. Again, there's a reference in 2 Samuel 3, verse 3, to Geshur. And Absalom has gone back to his mother's land, seeking refuge there as a long-lost son of Geshur, so to speak. So David, it says, longed to go forth unto Absalom, verse number 39. The question is, if David longed after Absalom, in terms of reconciling himself to Absalom, then why did Joab have to go to such lengths to bring Absalom back? If David's heart is toward Absalom in the way that we may think, then why does Joab have to go to such lengths? Furthermore, when he does come back, why does David treat him as he did? Chapter 14, verse 24, the king said, Let him turn not to his own house. Again, the Bible scholars and the commentators, they muse over this seemingly difficult inference and lesson and consequence in all of this. How do we put this all together? Some suggest what's happening here is that time has healed David's sorrow. We know from verse 37 that David mourns for his son every day. And so verse 39 gives us the idea that he's comforted concerning Amnon. But again, even the word comforted there doesn't sit as we understand that word. He is comforted seeing he was dead. And I think the likely idea here is that he still actually grieved for his son, Amnon. Part of the problem we have here is in our English language. We find ourselves struggling to understand the terms that are used in our English Bible as they are used to translate some of the complex Hebrew verbs. But some suggest the idea, yes, time is healed, Um, But there's a progressive nature of the process for David to bring Absalom back into the courts. Some think the idea is that he's constrained by demand for justice. He wants to show mercy, but he's constrained by demand for justice. I don't think that's it, though. Maybe, and if that's your persuasion tonight, then I'm not going to fall out with you. This is complex. But the other thought is that the words that we have in our English Bible are words that should not be understood in the way that we may first think of. The verb longed in verse number 39 
is a fairly broad Hebrew verb that allows for a breadth of meaning. And sometimes it is used in the sense of, if you like, coming to an end of. We might say even it has the idea that the soul of King David had enough of Absalom. Men can have that idea. His heart is longing in a different sense as we may understand it immediately. It's also true that to go forth unto, verse number 39, it says, long to go forth unto, that that term to go forth unto is not necessarily positive. In fact, it is used negatively in Deuteronomy 28, verse number 7, where it says, they shall come out against thee one way. And it's the idea of an army coming against the people of God. It's a, it's a hostility here. And so it may be the case that in verse number 1 of chapter 14, it simply says, the king's heart was toward Absalom. The word toward there again can mean upon or even against Absalom. Just saying, the Hebrew here is not straightforward. But you've got this difficulty, or an immediate reading is the assumption that David is wanting reconciliation. But the evidence in the chapter is he doesn't want reconciliation at all. And so how do you square it off those situations? Well, we've got to be honest, it's difficult. But I think more than likely what we're seeing here is that David's heart is still hostile toward Absalom at the start of chapter 14. He has a major issue with Absalom having killed his son Abnon. And that, to my mind, fits better with the rest of the chapter. At no point in chapter 14 do you sense uh, that David's heart is going towards Absalom in terms of affection. His soul is toward him. His soul is toward him as being against him. His soul is not in favor of him. His soul is opposed to Absalom. And we do not see David desiring reconciliation in this chapter. We don't see him going forward in affection towards Absalom. As I say, this is not straightforward. So what I present tonight, I do so, having sought to study it, having sought to consider it carefully. I do the best I can do with a clear conscience, and I trust I can carry your conscience also in the matter. But when you read the story of chapter 14, and I ask you to do so, because I want you to feel this tension. I want you to come to the house of God tonight somewhat confused and perplexed and ask yourself the question, well, how can this all really fit together? Because the start of the chapter actually sets the scene for the rest. We are meant, I believe, to read this chapter and think to yourselves, this is all a bit strange. All is not well in the land in this chapter. That's what I think we're meant to see. And so you'll note in your outline that I'm trying to make that point in the outline that I've given to you that all is not well, there are strange things happening in this chapter. Praise God, the strange things of this world are not strange to God. God's not out of control in this chapter, but we are meant to read this and wonder, does all really seem to be as it is? Because it begins with a strange woman. She's referred to as a wise woman, verse number 2. She's a strange woman who seems to be wise, but when you analyze her wisdom, you see that her wisdom is not the wisdom of God. It's the wisdom of man. And so why she's given this term, this adjective, she's a wise woman, when you analyze it carefully, you see that she's nothing but cunning and shrewd and crafty. Manipulative. 
not transparent, not, I believe, honoring to God in this matter. You see, her wisdom follows a script. The script is given to her by Joab, verse number 3. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Not only does he put the words in her mouth, but he gives her direction regarding the costume she should wear as the actress that she will be before David the king. There's an agenda here. Again, why? What's Joab up to here? Well, Joab is the Old Testament politician. He knows exactly what to do to make sure that his future is secure in the kingdom. And at this time, the likely candidate to take over the throne was none other than Absalom. He's going to be next in line for the royal court, and he presumes Absalom will be the next king, and therefore he's seeking, I believe, and again, I'm, this is speculation, I believe he's seeking to defend his place in the court for the next king in the line. And so he's trying to win favor with Absalom, without at the same time losing favor with David. And so he has this wonderfully intricate scheme planned, and he gives this woman of Tekoa a story to tell. It's a parable. Again, I think we're meant to see and hear this parable and think to yourself, wow, this is just like Nathan. Remember Nathan's story? Nathan brought the story, and the story brought conviction to David. And I think Joab has this idea, well, I'm going to do the same sort of thing. It worked before. It'll work this time. And he's got a similar story to tell, but this story's different. It lacks the wisdom of God. It's a man-made story. It doesn't come from God. God's not mentioned in this story. The story that comes from Joab's own imagination. The widow in this story has two sons. We see that. She's a widow woman. Her husband is dead. And the two sons, verse number 6, they strive together in the field. Again, I should say, please follow along here in your, uh, in your Bible. So have your Bible out and just scan your line, or you scan your eyes down these lines. I'm going to summarize it quite quickly. So the sons, they engage in a fight, and one son prevails, although there was a very close contest. There's nothing to part them, but one wins and the other dies. And then in verse number seven, the whole family, they want what appears to be justice. They come and they say, you've got to deliver this brother that we may kill him for the life of his brother. But in this story, the family aren't suing for justice. What they really want is the inheritance. And the woman's concern is that if her second son dies, they will then quench my coal. In other words, they'll, they'll take everything I have that's left. And beyond that, my husband shall have not name nor remainder upon the earth. The issue here is about the inheritance. So the family want the second son dead so they can have all the money themselves. Families and inheritances bring all manner of confusion in the world. Nothing changes. So you find this trouble confronting this woman in this story. And the king, it seems in verse number 8, is already on her side. Go to thine house, and I will give charge concerning thee. Verse 9 is difficult, but verse 10 explains verse 9, in that the king says he will give security to the woman. So verse 9 seems to be suggesting in some of the idioms of the time, that the woman realizes that if she goes back home, she's still under threat by her family. And therefore, she needs an answer now. She's forcing the king to give an answer immediately. He says, I, I, will, I will give consideration, I'll send you home, and I'll pass on a word in the future. She says, in essence, I need to know now, because my life is in danger. And he says, okay, 
No one can hurt you. No harm will happen to you. I will have your security. Then it continues, verse number 11, Then she said, I pray thee, let the king remember the Lord thy God, that thou wouldst not suffer the revenges of blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son. Now it seems to be the case here that this appeal for justice is reflecting upon God's dealings with the one who commits manslaughter, unintentional murder, and is to flee to the city of refuge. That's the concept here. The revenge of blood. And she's appealing on that ground that the revenge of blood destroy no more, they will destroy my son. And David then gives an oath. He hears her word, he says in verse number 11, as the Lord liveth. There's an oath-bound promise here that not one hair of thy son shall fall to the ground. He's taken her side. He understands the need she has. He wants the inheritance to stay in her family, and so he seeks to preserve the life of the son, the second son, the one who took the life of the first son. Now the twist. Verse 13 and 14, the woman reveals her intent of the story, and she says, well, king, you're saying one thing, but you're doing the opposite. You're preserving my son, but you're harming the people of God by not fetching home your own banished son. She's turned the story to reflect upon David's actions as Joab would see it. Remember, Joab's the agent of all this story. He's manipulating the point to say, well, David, you're speaking out both sides of your mouth. To me, you give defense to the son, but to yourself, you rob the people of likely the next king, Absalom. And so she says, Wherefore hast thou done this thing against the people of God? Bring back Absalom is the point. Now, what is interesting is the confusion of verse 15 through 17. This is perplexing. Because having made this point, verse 13 and 14, she then goes back to her own story. She makes the point again about she's the handmaid of the king and she wants the word of the king to be comfortable. She wants his judgment to help her situation. And she goes back to her own story. And you're left confused and scratching your head. What's going on here? Well, I think what's happening here is that she is careful that David would not suspect the real reason she came. I'll come back to my story and perhaps he won't notice the fact that I've made this point on the side. I don't know. I'm just trying to put this all together in some way that makes sense. So it may be some sort of evasive technique. It wasn't successful. David sees through it all. And you get down to verse number 18. The king says, Hide not from me, I pray thee, the thing that I shall ask thee. And the woman said, Let my lord the king now speak. And David says, I know who's behind all this. It's that shrewd, cunning, manipulative politician, Joab. He's up to no good yet again. He suspects, and the woman says, absolutely, my servant Joab have done this thing. The words are his words. It's all his scheme. Yet the king relents. He understands, I think, behind all of this, Joab perhaps has some idea of wisdom. Perhaps he does understand what should be done for the nation. And so in verse number 21, the king said unto Joab, Behold, now I have done this thing. Go, therefore, bring the young man Absalom again. There you go. All seems well. But it's not. 
All seems wise, but it's not. All is not as it seems. There are strange things happening in the land in this story. I think David has been, to some degree, taken in by a scheme. A story that seems to be wise, but is not wise. The Old Testament commentator, Keel, very helpful in this chapter, makes this observation. In comparing, in comparing the account of the woman and her sons and the murder of Amnon, he says this, This account differed, no doubt, from the case of Absalom. Inasmuch as in his case, no murder had taken place in the heat of a quarrel, and no avenger of blood demanded his death, so that the only resemblance was in the fact that there existed an intention to punish a murderer. And so Keel, reading this, says it was David's intent to punish Absalom. Suggestion. But that's the only similarity there is between the two stories. It's not like Nathan's story after all. Nathan's story was absolutely the equivalent of David's actions. There was clear parallels and God's wisdom is seen in it all. But this story, it's not a parallel even. It's not wise. It continues this way. But it was necessary to disguise the affair in this manner in order that David might not detect her purpose but might pronounce a decision out of pity for the poor widow which could be applied to his own conduct towards Absalom. There are those who think Joab understood that he could appeal to the emotional sensitivities of David who was soft towards his sons and use that to bring Absalom back to the court and therefore paved the way for Absalom to be king and Joab as his right-hand man. We need the help of God, don't we? To see through shrewdness and discern godly wisdom. We need it here. We need it in our lives. We need the wisdom of God. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. So there is this strange woman who seems to be wise, but isn't really. Secondly then, there's a strange homecoming that seems to bring renewal, but doesn't really. You see, you get the verse number 24, and the king says, Let him turn to his own house, and let him not see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house. There's the homecoming. It seems a time of renewal, but he sees not the king's face. He's home, but he's not reconciled. Again, Cain makes this point. David could not forgive Absalom altogether. He said to Joab, let him turn to his own house and his face he shall not see. This half-forgiveness was an imprudent measure and bore very bitter fruit. This is a half-forgiveness. Now, Absalom seems to prosper. He prospered personally. We'll, We'll come back to verse 25 and following next week. But he prospered personally. He prospers in family, he has children born at this time. It seems to be a time of renewal and prosperity. But the most important thing hasn't happened. He's not been reconciled to the king. And so in consequence of this difficulty, Joab suffers a loss of some barley. Joab will not accommodate Absalom's request to see the king, and so Absalom burns his barley field to get his attention, and Job then goes and engineers a meeting with the king. That's the clue here. Verse 32. As Absalom speaks to Joab, he says this, Let me see the king's face, the end of the verse, 
And if there be any iniquity in me, let him kill me. Absalom understood that he has not been forgiven. There's a bringing home. It looks like renewal, but it's not reconciliation. There's not been forgiveness. He understood that David still holds his sin against him. He says, well, if that's the case, let him deal with me as he sees fit. Now, there's a great question here, of course, to the rightness or the justice of this forgiveness that David would bring to Absalom. But just in passing, it's worth noting that Absalom knows exactly that he's not been forgiven. He knows he's not been reconciled. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. And this is just a passing application. When we forgive an offending party in our personal relationships, the offending party should not doubt the forgiveness they've enjoyed. Absalom knows here. He knows he's not been forgiven. He's home, renewed perhaps, but not really. Which leads to the third thing, which is a strange reunion that seems to show peace, but doesn't really. There's a kiss and there's a bow. The kiss is a sign of reconciliation. It is David's outwardly showing to Absalom that there is this reconciliation of their relationship. Verse number 33, the last words, and the king kissed Absalom. And Absalom bows himself to the ground before the king. Again, let me borrow the words of Keel. He says this, Nothing was said by Absalom about forgiveness. For his falling down before the king when he came into his presence was nothing more than the ordinary manifestation of reverence with which a subject in the east approaches his king. Absalom bows physically before King David, but in his heart he's plotting conspiracy. Chapter 15 makes that clear. So all seems to be good, chapter 14, verse 33 But in a few sentences, we're going to see all is not as it seems. Chapter 14 is just a strange chapter with strange things going on. We see Absalom's heart towards David and his determination to unseat David from the throne. And we'll see more of that in the future. So we look and we read chapter 14. And a couple of things may happen. You may close your Bible and go, what on earth do I make of this? Or you may just feel this sense of uneasiness. You know, sometimes you may read a book, a novel in some way, and you, you get to the end of the chapter, and the author has written the chapter in such a way that you, you, just, you know things are going to go badly from the next chapter on. Well, this is a piece of God-inspired literature. And we're meant to feel uneasy at the end of chapter 14. We know things are not going to end well. Why? Because all is not well. This chapter sets the scene for a terrible time in David's life. Absalom's conspiracy and David ends up fleeing from Jerusalem. All is not well because this is not, this is not a God-centered, God-honoring reconciliation. So I make the point, you'll see it in the outline. All is not well because this is an unjust, incomplete and insincere reconciliation. That's why the chapter feels strange. 
we have within ourselves, particularly those of us who are saved, we have within ourselves a sense, this is not how it ought to be. It's unjust. Absalom is not like the woman's son. The woman's son, accidentally, in a fight, yes, but not deliberately, not premeditated, took the other son's life. But Absalom had for two years contemplated murder and planned murder and took in Absalom's life when it was not his to engage such a punishment. Absalom deserved punishment. Justice demanded life for life. This is an unjust reconciliation. And even if his life was spared, there was no mention of sacrifice, no mention of atonement. It is this matter, come home, but don't see my face. And when you see my face, again, the end of chapter 14, you go, this doesn't feel right. It's an unjust reconciliation. It's incomplete. We sense that also. He's, he's home, but they're, they're, not, they're not of one heart again, are they? There's still this, this separation between them. There's this hostility, this enmity between them. And it's definitely insincere. Absalom's bowing to the king is a marked insincerity of hearts. Their hearts are not united. This is an unjust, incomplete, insincere reconciliation. All is not well here. You see, the gospel is not like this. We sense the uneasiness here of this poor form of reconciliation. And it turns our minds to the reconciliation that we enjoy with God, which is just and complete and sincere. And whilst all is not well in 2 Samuel 14 in this reconciliation, when we get to the gospel, we can say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Because God reconciles us to himself. Not like this, but in justice, completely and sincerely. And so to encourage our hearts at the end of this perplexing chapter, please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The Bible takes us to Christ in various ways. Sometimes we see Christ in the Old Testament, the types and the shadows. But other times we see Christ in the contrast. We see the gospel in the contrast with the wickedness of the world. We see the gospel in the contrast with the feelings of this world. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse number 17 following, we see what it is to know and enjoy true gospel reconciliation. We are told of a just reconciliation. Verse 19, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. He reconciles the world unto himself because he does not impute their trespasses unto them, but he imputes their trespass to Christ. Verse number 21, he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Our reconciliation with God is absolutely just. Because the barrier between man and God is sin. And God deals with sin in Christ Jesus. And as sin is dealt with, there can be just reconciliation. Praise God, the blood of Christ brings us to God. And as the blood of Christ is shed and our sins are forgiven, we can know this just reconciliation. Our sins are not imputed against us. But they're not ignored. They're not forgotten in that sense. They are dealt with in Christ Jesus. And therefore this, praise God, is a just reconciliation. And God is the just and the justifier of the ungodly. It is complete reconciliation. 
Verse 19, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. It is God who brings about this reconciliation. And as God reconciles, God does not do anything half-heartedly or half-measured. When he says God reconciles, that means what it says. God does not say, come home but don't see my face. God does not say, you can come this far but no further. He invites us into his very presence. The reconciliation is so full and so complete. Nothing left undone. It is, of course, pictured in the prodigal. When the prodigal comes back, the father runs the prodigal and embraces the prodigal and brings him into the family. It is that wonderful picture of God reconciling the stranger, the son who goes far off and brings him near by the blood of the lamb. This is God's complete reconciliation. And it is a reconciliation that is sincere. We see here, verse number 14, the reference, the love of Christ constraineth us. It is Christ's love that brings about this reconciliation. The love of Christ, which is the love of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, they are determined in their hearts to reconcile sinners to themselves. The heart of God is to bring about this reconciliation. God is not reluctant in reconciling sinners to himself. He does so with his whole heart, gladly, and delights to bring us unto himself. We see the heart of God in verse number 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you, we plead with you in Christ that be ye reconciled to God. We see the desire of God. God is earnestly desiring this reconciliation. There is no need for some smart, contrived story. God's the one who brings about this. No Joab needed, no woman of Tekoa. God gladly, from his own heart, is the one who brings about this reconciliation. He's the offended God, but he's the initiator of this reconciliation. And he brings unto himself. But you know, part of the gospel is also the wonderful truth that not only is God's heart gladly involved in reconciliation, so our hearts are also glad in this reconciliation. Verse 17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things are, all things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The reborn child of God delights in this reconciliation. Glad to be in the presence of God. This is reconciliation that is a reconciliation of mutual joy and delight. Here all is well. Second Samuel, all is not well. We just know, we read it carefully and we see this is not well. But here is a just and a complete and a sincere reconciliation. And we can say... We can say it is well with our souls because God has reconciled us to himself in Christ Jesus. Hence we are exhorted, verse number one of chapter six, we then as workers together with him beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. For he said, I have heard thee in a time accepted and the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let me close by borrowing the words of this wise woman of Tekoa, where in verse 14 of chapter 14, she says, These things are true, for we must needs die. 
Yet God hath devised means that his banished be not expelled from him. There's gospel in that text. Death is appointed unto all men. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. All deserve wrath. We are those who rebelled against God. We're unlawful, ungodly. But God has in his mercy devised a plan to bring the banished home. We don't deserve this. We don't deserve for God to reconcile us to himself. And dear sinner, there are some of you here tonight, and you must needs die. And you're in the far country. You're banished from God. You're not reconciled to God. You don't know fellowship with God. But God has provided a means whereby you can be brought back to the fellowship of God. The blood of Christ, his person and his work, his life, his death, his resurrection, they secure the means whereby you can be reconciled to God. I trust that Lord will help us tonight. May this be an encouragement to our souls. A perplexing story. But I think it does point us to gospel truth. May God help us. Please consider this again tonight for his name's sake. Let's pray. O Lord God and Father, we confess, O Lord, so much that we lack knowledge and understanding of all of these things. Give us help, just in our own, in our own devotions, give us help day by day in the understanding of your word. We want to see Christ in all the scriptures. And so bless these thoughts to every hearer tonight. We pray, O God, that it would lead and guide us towards that true reconciliation that you brought about through the death of your Son. Thank you again for that unspeakable, indescribable gift of Christ Jesus. May we delight that we're in the family of God tonight. Bless us this week. Keep your hand upon us for good. May we know your favor. May we know your direction and your guidance in our lives. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.